0: Greg Soden. Lately, I've been into how food ties in with religion. The first person to suggest food to me was Dr. Rabia Gregory, my guest on episode 45. Something came up about food on a Twitter thread, and she suggests that I find the book Religion, Food, and Eating in North America, an edited volume by Dr. Ben Zeller, Dr. Marie Dallum, Dr. Reed Nielsen, and Dr. Nora Rubel, I got the book, and I've been sampling the wonderful chapters for the past few months. So, why does food matter? A passage from Dr. Marie Dallum's introduction chapter states: "Quote, cultural groups have explicit rules about food, and these may include areas about what foods are encouraged and what foods are taboo, what materials count as food." what specific foods are consumed during rituals and holidays, what kinds of food combinations are acceptable and forbidden, how foods must be prepared, and how foods must be eaten. When we further add a religious filter to any examination of people's food practices, the reasons for what and how we eat becomes even more complex. To me, this marvelous quote summarizes the complex ways in which people make decisions or receive instructions about their food. Such decisions and instructions can result in fasting, vegetarianism, or keeping kosher. As a high school religious studies teacher, I took for granted that my students would have a more thorough understanding of basic food terms in religion, such as halal or kosher. But when Muslim or Jewish or Jain guest speakers would visit our class, food was among the most popular topic discussed. It turns out those basic terms aren't so basic after all. But those fantastic doorways into conversation between my students and guest speakers speaks to the power of food as a communal tool to bring human beings together. Today's conversation with two of the book's editors and contributors Dr. Noah Rubel and Dr. Ben Zeller is about food ways in religion, which means the study of how humans relate to food through religion. We discuss this fantastic book, Religion, Food, and Eating in North America, some of the biggest lessons presented in the chapters, and get into the ways food, religion, and eating can be studied. Dr. Nora Rubel is the Jane and Alan Batkin Professor of Jewish Studies and Chair of the Department of Religion and Classics at the University of Rochester in New York. Dr. Ben Zeller is Associate Professor of Religion at Lake Forest College in Illinois. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation on Foodways with Dr. Nora Rubel and Dr. Ben Zeller.
1: Dr. Nora Rubel and Dr. Ben Zeller, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Glad to be here. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us. So all three of us are on different Great Lakes, which I find to be really hilarious. Uh, So I'm on Lake Erie in Buffalo. Dr. Zeller, you're in Chicago, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct, yep. You're on Lake Michigan. And Dr. Rubel, you're just down the road from me in uh, Rochester, New York, and you're on Lake Ontario. So with that said, Great Lakers, happy spring. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. It's uh, it's been quite a winter up here in Buffalo. We had a a doozy. Um, So I kind of want to just start off by having you both introduce yourselves, your areas of academic interest, and however you see fit. Nora, do you want to go ahead and start?
2: Sure. Um, So I am in Rochester on Lake Ontario. I teach at the University of Rochester, where I hold the Jane and Alan Batkin Professorship in Jewish Studies, and I serve as the chair of the Department of Religion and Classics. Uh, My area most broadly is in American religions, but most of my written scholarship relates to religion, race, and ethnicity as seen in the experiences of American Jews. I just finished my five-year term as the chair of the Religion and Food Group at the American Academy of Religion, and I'm currently finishing a book that's a cultural biography of a cookbook that came out of an American Jewish settlement house at the beginning of the 20th century. Marvelous.
3: Great. Well, uh, yep. So you're correct. I'm in Chicago. Uh, my name is Ben Zeller. I am the associate uh, professor of religion at Lake Forest College, which is about 30 miles north of uh, downtown Chicago in the northern suburbs, right on Lake Michigan. Uh, I also teach in our American Studies department as well. Uh, So I'm also an Americanist uh, trained in North American religions. My main research areas are religion and food and new religious movements, groups that are often called cults or sects. And. uh, I, uh, like Nora, I just uh, cycled on to the uh, Religion and Food Group as one of the new co chairs. And previously, I was chair of the American Academy of Religions uh, Religion Food and Eating North America seminar. Uh, so, we have a lot of uh, intersections in terms of the work we've done.
1: Wonderful. Ben, how did you and Nora first meet? Where did your paths cross?
3: Yeah. Uh, we actually met in, in grad school. Uh, we both went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, and Nora, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we both had the same advisor. I think Yaakov was our advisor.
2: That's right. But I certainly That's
3: was for me. Yeah. So Yaakov Ariel, who's a wonderful scholar uh, of Judaism and uh, Judaism in America, and Judaism more broadly, North American religions, more broadly, the relationship of evangelicals and Jews. He does great work. So he was our advisor. And so we we met through Yaakov. We met through grad school. I don't think we actually had any courses together, but we both had a mutual interest, particularly in the study of of religion and food. Uh, so we uh, I think we probably met at one of Yaakov's potlucks, to be honest.
1: Nice, no. Nora. Do you have any uh, memories of your early days of meeting Ben?
2: I'm trying to remember, and I actually, now that you say it, I do think it was at Yakov's house for one of his potlucks.
3: Yeah, Maybe I
1: think a so at the too.
2: Party, possibly.
1: How fitting that you two would meet over over dinner, then, right?
2: Yeah, <laughs> totally.
3: I I've never thought about it. But I I that that's my visual image is is of chatting with with wine in one hand and hors d'oeuvres in the other
1: (laughs) i love it so that's very fitting because we are here today to talk about food specifically and so i'm curious about a little bit of the backstory of why you both care about food like how did your academic interests collide with food as being important in the area of religious studies is there any interesting backstory there nora
2: sure um i'm 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 only speaking for myself, but I think this is true of Ben too, is that neither of us went to graduate school to study food and religion Mm -hmm. um, outright. But my first book was on contemporary culture wars between liberal Jews and more religiously observant Jews. And the question of kashrut, or the Jewish dietary laws, comes up all the time. And not just between Jews who keep kosher and those who don't, it's on the stringency of your kosher observance, the sort of adherence your rabbi calls for the organization of your kitchen, and frequently this stands in as representative of the type of Jew you are. And um, and I would say more broadly, the story of American religion is frequently told as one of immigration and, and broader attempts at acculturation. It's hard not to look at the story of immigration as one that also includes attempts to retain some sort of identification with the old country or traditional ancestral practices, and usually that does mean food. And um, and also I, I've written a bit about African-American religions. And while the black experience is historically one of forced migration until the 20th century, there's also a story there about food as a means of survival, protest, and continuity. And, and I would just finally say that looking at food practices is also a window into women's religious lives. Um, I think one of the reasons that religious studies came later to looking at food than some other disciplines is the tendency for religious studies to have been uh, primarily textual and top-down in their view of religion and women's experiences often lay outside of that project.
1: That's so interesting because you think about who is taught um, religious texts throughout history. Like if I think about ancient India, like the Brahmin class would be taught religious um, texts. So who would not be? Well women during those times. Um, So that's a really interesting point that you just made. Thanks for that. Sure. Ben, how did you become interested in food colliding with religion?
3: So like Nora, it was sort of a, a, a side interest of mine, uh, initially. Uh, My initial work uh, in my first book is on new religious movements or cults. And one of the groups I spent a lot of time studying, uh, in this case ethnographically, uh, is ISKCON, the Hare Krishna movement, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Uh, And among this group, the the devotees, the Hare Krishnas are usually called, uh, I discovered there were Uh, that food was actually quite central to the practice. And and in fact, uh, I mean, they were famous for their uh, free public feasts that they often used to sort of uh, get attention and seek converts. But also, theologically speaking, they believe that giving out food is sort of a way to spread good karma and, in fact, help people um, uh, achieve spiritual uh, uh, highness. uh, Height. Um, Actually, I met someone when I was in Doing doing this work, who said actually he had converted to the religion because of the food, and that really got me thinking about uh, the way in which we needed to central, uh, to make food more central in our analysis of new religious movements. Uh, so after that first book was done, which looked uh, at, at new religions, I increasingly began to think about food, and like Nora said, I think that one of the things that food does really really well is it. Let's us get to uh, what we call lived religion, which is sort of the way that religion is practiced on the ground, not just in texts, not just by authorities or institutions, but the way common everyday people, women and men uh, who are not leaders, who are everyday adherents, actually practice their religion. And again, I think about new religious movements because that's what I study. We tend to talk a lot about the charismatic founders and the leaders uh, we don't talk much about the individuals and what brings them in and why they're attracted to it. And food is one way to think about those everyday people. Uh, so just as Nora said, it, it, it helps us sort of access uh, the way in which religion has not uh, been studied as much in the past as it should have.
1: I love that. And any longtime listeners of this show will know that I'm like super into punk rock music. And so I, I've been thinking about everything you just said about the ISKCON movement and uh, reading stories of like homeless New York City punk rockers in like the 1970s and 80s who did convert to being Hare Krishna's because they could get free food on the streets in sure, New York City yeah, when yeah. they're homeless. I mean, it's there's a huge magic. movement you, around you that.
3: You've probably heard of the, the, the Krishna Core group. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, yeah, they're there.
1: <laughs> Love it. Okay, so let's move on to kind of talking about the, the book that you all collaborated on in, I believe, 2014 out from Columbia University Press. The book is called Religion, Food, and Eating in North America. And I read the acknowledgement section of the book um, last week, and you write that the book is a direct outgrowth of a seminar held at the American Academy of Religion Conference in 2008 to 2012, and you've both alluded to this group just a few minutes ago. So with the book arriving, um, can you tell me about this interest group of scholars and your circle of academic friends? Who's out there doing this work on food and religion? What's your scene like, Ben?
3: Sure. Uh, so Nora's heard the story before, but I'm, I'm going to start with this at it because uh, when we put the seminar together, uh, Nora and I and Reed Alum and Reed Nelson and some other folks, uh, we put in sort of a, uh, normally at the American Academy of Religion, you have a call for papers uh, for each group and you say, you know, come, uh, you know, submit your papers. We had for our first seminar meeting, we said, just show up in a room if you're interested in religion and food, just mm-hmm. to talk about what your research interests are. And if you're, Interested in investing in a project to create a book. Uh, And we reserve, they ask you what sort of size room to reserve. And I didn't want it to feel empty. So I said, let's just get a small room of, I think, 20 people Mm -hmm. is what we clicked. Uh, And we got there. And Nora can correct me if I'm wrong. I think we must have had like 50 people there shoved in this tiny little room. Uh, there were people sitting on the furniture. People were out the door. It turned out that there were dozens and dozens of, of our colleagues, many of whom we known, we knew, but many of whom we didn't know, who were interested in religion and food, which had never really been institutionalized before. The way the academy is is developed, it's usually based on tradition. So you study Judaism. You study Hinduism. Uh, and and there are some sort of more thematic approaches, but food had not been one of the ones which which had been institutionalized. There was just no place to go if you were interested in religion and food at the American Academy of Religion until our work. And we discovered that there were many people who were drawn to this.
1: Nice. Nora, what do you think? What stands out about those conference years?
2: Well, I, I would also say, and, and the difference between a seminar and a regular uh, group uh, meeting is that our papers were pre-circulated. So we chose, I don't know, Ben, was it five? Five or six each um, each meeting to yeah. pre-circulate. So people would read them and come ready to discuss them. And there would be people who would come who were not part of the group, who had not read the papers, that were literally just there to hear us talk about papers they had not read. And yeah. uh, And I remember thinking, this is amazing. You know, this is really demonstrating a need. And, and there are so many people out there that were thinking about this stuff, that were able to um, be a part of us, a part of this group um, tangentially or more directly.
1: Excellent. Well, and I know that you both teach classes on religion and food at your respective institutions. Nora, what are some of your classes like? Uh, wh- what are some of your classes about over at Rochester?
2: OK, well, I I first taught a Religion and Food in America course when I was a graduate student at UNC in the spring of 2005. It was my last semester of graduate school. And then it then became a class I taught regularly, first as a visiting professor at Connecticut College and now at the University of Rochester. It has been a few years since I've taught it. Um, And I really, I don't know, I think this is something Ben and I talk about whenever we see each other. I plan to radically revamp it before I teach it again, um, because there is so much good scholarship that has come out, especially since our book came out um, five years ago. When I first started teaching the class, I was literally taking articles from Sabre magazine and memoirs and biographies because there wasn't a lot of scholarship out there and now it's it's too much almost
1: nice ben what are your classes like
3: yeah and i would say the same thing when, when i first started teaching this i remember i spent a summer just trying to find anything that would have been written on religion and food and now it's just it's there's there's it's, it's just endless uh so i teach this class uh, I, I i'm teaching it next year i'm on sabbatical this year so i'm not teaching it now it's um I usually cap it at around 15 uh, because uh, I teach a smaller arts college. I can do that. Um, But because then we can do a lot of hands-on work together. So I often ask students to bring uh, recipes uh, to talk to. Often it's their mothers or their grandmothers, sometimes their fathers. Um, But to bring recipes associated with their religious cultural traditions to share. And we cook together and we talk about uh, the way in which – in which food can connect to culture and religion, and often that leads to other connections too, such as ethnicity or race or gender. Uh, I tend to use a lot of first-person narratives, autobiographical accounts. Uh, One of my favorite activities we actually do in the religion and food class is we visit a Sikh Gurdwara, uh, and uh, there we, uh, we take part in the langar, which is the free communal meal. Uh, which is served to really anyone who's hungry can come in the door of Gurdwara and, and receive uh, receive food. But it's uh, it's something which we can do as participants, where we can go into this big industrial kitchen and we can help. And so we learn about Sikhism. Uh, usually in my class of 15, maybe one, two students has any knowledge of Sikhism. We actually learn about Sikhism, but the Sikh tradition through their food, uh, which to me is, is one of the great things we can do with food, is we don't come in by studying texts and institutions and history. All of which are good. We come in through the visceral, direct experience.
1: Nice. And you don't come at it from like, um, like, where do we disagree? You come at it on the thing that all humans have in common, which is like we all eat and we all share these experiences over meals. Where do you, um, in your class, where do you cook those meals together? Like, do you have class like at your home? Do you have class like on a at a campus kitchen? How do you go about doing that?
3: Well, when I lived on campus, uh, again, I teach at a smaller liberal arts college of about 1,600 students. Uh, so the first four years I was there, uh, we taught on campus at my – I lived on campus at my house. Uh, now that I live uh, away from campus, we use one of the um, the dorm room kitchens. The, the newest dorm has sort of a big communal kitchen. Uh, and I, let's see, before I was here, I, uh, I taught the class elsewhere. I, I don't recall where we taught, where we cooked.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so I'm a teacher, so I've always loved hearing about pedagogy and practice. Um, I had Chris Jones on recently. I've had many um, high school teachers on the show. And so I love hearing about what people do in their own classrooms. And in religion and food classes, I'm curious about if there are any, like, special guest speakers. Um, Ben, you just mentioned some site visits and demonstrations you use in your own classes to take the experiences for the students to the next level. Nora, do you have any special strategies or pedagogical practices um, that really are special to you that make that uh, make you look forward to your own classes
2: yeah um, well I have occasionally used guest speakers uh, sometimes local food makers um, I think now I'm gonna have to steal Ben's syllabus for the next time I teach the <laughs> So class. cool. but, um, but uh, primarily what I've done and this is something I've done since the beginning Is I have students individually prepare and share food as a part of a short class presentation at the beginning of almost every class. Um, And uh, that would be on a religious observance or a holiday. Oh, um, wonderful. Where they would have to then explain the cuisine like, what is the food, uh, the etiquette. So, who makes it, how's it prepared? uh, religious taboos, if there are any, sometimes there aren't, and then the significance of the food as related to the religious world it comes out of. And that's something that we usually take as sort of a separate presentation that has nothing to do necessarily with what we're studying that day, but it's, um, it's something they do um, ongoing. And it's interesting how it's changed over time because the first time I taught this in North Carolina, I remember the first presentation, these two women chose, um, an Islamic holiday. Uh, it was al Adha and they made meat pies in their dorm kitchen with Pillsbury, uh, crescent rolls mm-hmm. and, uh, and ground meat. It was a recipe they got from a, uh, a, someone who lived on their floor who was Muslim and they used their, her mother's, uh, recipe and then they served it to all of us and we all ate it. You know, it's three days, you know, a week into class. I thought it was this amazing um, exercise in trust that everybody just said, okay, I'm going to eat these meat (laughs) pies you made in your dorm kitchen. Um, Over the years, this has become a lot more complicated because there are a lot of allergies, there are a lot of religious restrictions, a lot of vegetarianism, a lot of veganism. Um, So we've kind of used that to also demonstrate difference. Um, so in one case you could say just if you eat something that someone gives you, that's a lot of trust that you're putting in that person. But then also understanding that there are some things people cannot eat, um, and the reasons why has also been kind of a useful exercise.
1: It seems to me like your students are coming and telling you about experiences that they are putting themselves into. Like it seems like they are seeking out these experiences for themselves and then bringing it back to class and telling you about it. Does that seem to be accurate?
2: Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it, particularly for these, um, for these exercises, you know, they they are usually. Trying to choose something that this is that is not from their background. Gotcha.
1: So um, the intro to the book Religion, Food, and Eating in North America was written by one of your colleagues, Marie Dallum, from the University of Oklahoma, and this introduces the concept of religious foodways, which is brand new to me but makes complete sense upon reading this fantastic introduction. Um, and these foodways are relevant to both of your chapters. So, um, Nora, can you explain what a foodway is and how a foodway can become religious in nature?
2: Uh, Yeah, and I I think I'm going to take the liberty of actually quoting Marie, um, because I do think that her introduction is remarkably clear and one of the few uh, great introductions to an edited volume that is a really helpful essay on its own. Um, and she writes, entire cultural groups have explicit rules about foods and these may include ideas about what foods are encouraged and what foods are taboo, what materials count as food, what specific foods are consumed during the rituals and holidays, what kinds of food combinations are acceptable and forbidden, how foods must be prepared and how foods must be eaten. So. I would just add to that that Foodways, simply put, is the study of what people eat and how and why they eat it. And anthropologists and sociologists have long been interested in Foodways, but uh, my tribe of religious studies scholars has just recently, well, not just recently, but um, came later to the party on giving these matters attention outside of just examining dietary laws and food taboos. uh, Foodways encompasses Much more than those restrictions because what people choose to eat when they have choices Says a lot about a group and that allows us to analyze issues of religious practice political affiliation and Identity formation so Marie's introduction is so great because she explicitly calls for us to move beyond the descriptive what and into the analytical how
1: Ben do you have any additional comments on introducing foodways?
3: Well, I would just echo what what Nora said, and and I'm I'm really pleased she, that, that we went right to what, what what Marie wrote because I think she really did capture um, for our project the way in which foodways was such a helpful concept. Uh, and again, as Nora said, we weren't the first people in religious studies to use this concept, but uh, I think that one of the reasons our project was so successful uh, it, it, it was that we all looked at at this concept and, and the way in which food could be deployed to look at at, at religion more broadly. Uh, and that's why I think the chapters all sort of connect together and why I think uh, Marie's introduction does such a good job of bringing it all together is, is this concept really does work. It really does have legs.
1: Ben, how do you see foodways as supporting religious culture for who is practicing it like if you have a group of people that all practice a foodway and all are the same religion how does that create a bond among those people
3: well i would say it's it's a it's a basic anthropological fact that we form relationships with the people with whom we eat um and not that we can't form relationships with people we don't eat, but that it is it is less less easy. Uh, so therefore, if if your food traditions, your food ways, encourage eating within the group versus not eating outside of the group, that's going to have a direct communal communal effect. Uh, but also, it isn't just eating; it's cooking, it's preparation, it's farming, uh, it's it's shopping. Uh, food isn't just sort of the what you find on the plate there's an entire line of production which goes before it uh and if you trace that line particularly if you look at questions like who's making the food who's producing it uh who's cooking it uh what are the written and unwritten rules and norms uh here we're getting some of Nora's really great new work on cookbooks uh you can find that uh often embedded within these within these norms, within these traditions, are all sorts of written and unwritten cultural laws and norms about what is appropriate or not, who gets to count as inside or outside, who has the say on on what is the authoritative, appropriate, natural way to eat. And these questions all come into the into focus when we think about food.
1: Nora, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I mean I, I think what Ben that is great. And I, I do think that sometimes, you know what we were pushing against was um, kind of the idea that you would just think about religion and food as something that's um, uh, symbolic um, and mm-hmm. or a metaphor for some sort of religious spirituality. And that sometimes food is not a metaphor or a symbol, and sometimes it's just food. It's sustenance for religious peoples. And so in addition to being central to uh, religious gatherings like congregational potlucks or uh, coffee hours, um, food also uh, frequently functions practically within religious groups. So as fundraisers. So Mm -hmm. you look at the spaghetti dinners of Italian-American Catholic parishes or the Nation of Islam's famous bean pies. And I I would argue that 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 counts as religious food waste.
1: So you both have chapters in the book. Nora, yours is on feasting at the end of fasts, and Ben, yours is on the quasi-religion of vegetarianism and locavorism, both of which I found these chapters were fantastic for me um, as a reader. So, Nora, you point out a major trend in your chapter— um, in your chapter, the feast at the end of the fast, the evolution of the American of an American Jewish ritual, and the trend is that people seem much more likely to do a prescribed food ritual than actually attend a service. So my question is, what is it about the food practice that sticks with people? Um, instead of getting in their cars and going to a house of worship? Like, why do they continue to do the food practices after they have left the um, the communal gathering at the house of worship?
2: Well, I would say that this is, uh, this is a trend that has been going on for a long time, and it's frequently bemoaned by people who sort of say, oh, well, this is just gastronomic Judaism, it's not real Judaism, but it is... Um, It is the dominant form of Judaism um, in America. There's a lot of scholarship about the rise of the quote unquote nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who lack a religious affiliation. But among American Jews affiliation, as we understand it, belonging to a synagogue has almost always been a demographic minority. So um, but to answer your question more directly, um, I like to refer to a study from 1967 on Jewish identity and practice by sociologists Marshall Sklar and Joseph Greenblum. Their study examined the reasons why some rituals were retained by American Jews and why others were abandoned. And what they found was that rituals are much more likely to be retained when the ritual is, among other things, something that can be um, effectively redefined in modern terms doesn't demand social isolation or the adoption of a unique lifestyle and also kind of goes along with the religious culture of the larger community and provides a quote Jewish alternative. Um, So it needs to feel Jewish. So in essence that I think explains why Jews are more likely to make traditionally or culturally Jewish foods on individual holidays than to keep kosher every day. Uh, Food conjures heritage and memory in a positive way, as opposed to some religious strictures represented by organized religious institutions. So it's more like the carrot and not the stick. Gotcha.
1: Okay, so something else that surprised me in your chapter that I've never noticed is the lack of feast breaking the end of Yom Kippur— I've never really noticed that. Um, I'm not Jewish, but I did teach a religious studies class for high school students for five years. So, um, But that was something new that I learned in your chapter. And that's different comparing Ramadan uh, with the end of fast um, feasts. Christmas and Easter, they all have feasting. So with that in mind, the American Jewish population is modifying this practice before our very eyes, which is something that I think that many people probably don't know Anything about so? How is the breakfast changing in American Judaism on Yom Kippur?
2: Okay, so um, I would I I am more likely to suggest that the breakfast reflects the changing of American Judaism. Oh,
1: okay, that's fine. Um,
2: mm-hmm. So, I traditionally, for a variety of economic and cultural factors, immediate post-fast feasting has not been the practice of Ashkenazi Jews, Um, Ashkenazi referring to Central and Eastern European Jews. There's a tradition in North African countries uh, of breaking the Yom Kippur fast with a feast, but not in the lands that the majority of American Jews hail from. So more likely Jews traditionally had a quiet meal at home, some tea and leftover honey cake from Rosh Hashanah. It's a very somber day. Um, mid-century Jewish cookbooks have no menus or recipes directed at a post-Yom Kippur meal. But when you get to the 1980s and the 90s, you not only have these menus in cookbooks, you have magazine and newspaper articles discussing the break fast, as well as major supermarkets catering to this holiday. And so these menu suggestions uh, reflect a major shift from this traditionally modest breaking of the fast with just the family to a far more lavish brunch style Event, a potluck. And I think unlike Jewish holidays like Passover or Hanukkah, which can be celebrated for their universalist themes and home based practice, Yom Kippur is a different holiday entirely. So that's one that speaks specifically to the relationship between Jews and their God and takes uh, place primarily in the synagogue. American Jews, a lot of American Jews fast. So the majority, uh, more American Jews fast than belong to a synagogue, like candles on Shabbat. So this is a thing that a lot of Jews are doing, but a lot of them are not going to synagogue. So the American Jews, by creating a break fast tradition, have in a way been able to redefine Yom Kippur as a more inclusive, potentially universal holiday, one that can be shared with Jews and non-Jews. And in many ways, it's the events more about the good parts of religion, as it's seen without the convention and the hierarchy that a lot of American Jews reject.
1: I'm going to ask a few of my uh, Jewish friends who do not go to synagogue, but do practice home <laughs> food practices, what they, what they think about your chapter. So I'm excited to share it with them. Um, ben, your chapter cracked me up. Because so much of it could have been about my last decade and a half of going in and out and in and out of vegetarianism and veganism and back to vegetarianism, back to um, carnivorism, everything. Um, so, I've been a vegetarian um, since 2015, and I use this word purposely, but I lapsed in the summer of 2018 during a very stressful move across the country from Missouri to New York. And so. My curiosity was piqued when I read your chapter because so much of it could have been about me. How did you first notice vegetarianism as a standalone quasi-religion?
3: Honestly, I think it was when someone told me that they had converted to vegetarianism or veganism, uh, and it would have been in passing, I think, in a religion and food course, one of my students told me. And I think that was probably this this nameless student whenever this happened. That's what got me thinking, uh, because then I began to pay attention particularly to uh, – celebrities would give interviews and talk about their food practices. Uh, not just vegetarianism and veganism. This was also right around the time when I was doing this research of when locavorism was taking off. Uh, this was when Pollen's Omnivore's Dilemma had just come out and Barbara Kingsolver's uh, Animal Vegetable Miracle, both of which described uh, locovorism, which is local, intentional local eating. Uh, this was a, sort of at the tail end of the Atkins diet, but right before paleo got big. So there was a lot of sort of Interest, and there still is, obviously, to today I would say paleo has a lot of it, um, in, in the way in which food ways and food choices can function as a religion, and that conversion seemed like a really good metaphor and a really good model to think about how people move between different food ways.
1: When people talk about conversion, do they realize that they're using like uh, traditionally religious terminology?
3: Well, if they stop and think about it, but we don't tend to stop and think too much. Most of us don't. Um, but when I, uh, so for this project, I, I worked with, uh, I think it was about 20 at the end, um, interlocutors or informants, uh, and we produced oral histories of their food, their personal food ways, their personal food life choices and, and conversion trajectories. And after we went through all this, then uh, then I explained to them my project and how I was using conversion as a model. And almost all of them, Said to me at that point, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." Uh, and a few had actually uh, read about religious conversion and said, "Oh yeah, this 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 sounds like it." A few of them were were Christian in orientation, and uh, Paul's experience in the road to Damascus kept coming up. Uh, the idea of sort of your your sort of uh, you're struck down by this sudden this sudden need to change. Uh, and I actually had a few people who had actually converted religions, too, who said, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds like what I did for, for my religious conversion. Uh, so, yeah, I, we don't tend to think about it much. But uh, if you do stop and think about it, then, yeah, I think that uh, that, that conversion is an apt metaphor.
1: Thinking about Uh, Michael Pollan and Barbara Kingsolver as like food prophets is also uh, something that Mm -hmm. I had a chuckle about whenever I was reading, because I've read both of those books that you referred to. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a concept I want to ask quickly about, and that's something called implicit religion, which was popularized by Edward Ian Bailey. And I'm curious if your notion of quasi-religion is similar to the concept of implicit religion, Um, I read a book last year called Punk Rock is My Religion by Frances Stewart in the UK. And she said that the idea of going to punk rock shows and having that experience was almost like sort of like going to church. And she has has a lot of explaining within the book about that and on this podcast. But do you see quasi-religion and implicit religion in similar veins
3: yeah, I think they're very similar concepts. And there's another one. Uh, Gary Latterman wrote a book, uh, I think Sacred Matters was the the name of the book, looking at uh, everything from sports to, to film going as sort of these uh, these things akin to religion. I forget what the term he uses. is. It, it, it might have been implicit religion. Uh, I think that what all of us are doing uh, is taking what I would call a functionalist approach to religion, that if something functions or acts like other religions and recognizing it's sort of a, a constructed category – but if, if it acts like it, then we're going to call it one. So if it gives you, and here it depends how you're defining religion, but if it provides community, if it provides a sense of meaning, if it provides rituals, uh, if, it, uh, if it has sacred texts and, and leaders and adherents, all the things we often associate with religions, then we're going to treat it like one in terms of our studies. That doesn't necessarily mean it is a religion, but as an academic, we can approach it that way. Uh, there is a fascinating court case, though, a bit of a tangent here, a fascinating court case by mm-hmm. a vegan in california who sued uh she refused a vaccination which was based on uh it was produced by uh, by chicken eggs uh i forget what it was it was a uh, some sort of uh, vaccine and she refused to take it because of her her vegan beliefs she said her vegan beliefs uh that this vaccine was made with with uh, with dead chicken parts uh and she actually it, it went to to the state court and the state court had to rule over whether vegetarianism i'm sorry whether veganism counted as a Religion, because if it was a religion, she would be allowed to be exempt from this vaccination requirement. It was a, a workplace requirement, and eventually, the court determined veganism was not a religion. Uh, but it took a couple of different courts. There were there were appeals back and forth before they could decide whether veganism really was or was not a religion, legally speaking, in California.
1: Ben, if you were writing your chapter today, say your book was coming out in 2020 instead of 2014, would you include that as an example within your chapter?
3: I would, and I, whenever I give a talk on this, I always include that. And Also, I would talk more about paleo. I think that the paleo diet has really taken off as a quasi-religion. I think locavorism has somewhat died down after those, those two books have been out a while. Uh, but yeah, there's some updates I would make.
1: Nora, if you were writing your chapter today, is there anything that you would update as far as uh, happenings within BreakFast um, since the book came out in 2014?
2: Um... I don't know, honestly. I think, um, and I, so I will say that when the book came out, there have been more articles paying attention to the breakfast. Um, I'm not re- honestly. We can edit this in post, right?
1: Oh, totally. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. absolutely fine. <laughs> I
2: have no idea. I like. I I don't know if I would have added anything. Um, I mean, I think that there's. Hmm.
3: that's not a fair question you didn't put in a list I know I'm I'm sorry sorry.
2: (laughs) I
1: didn't make you think about that um so I I will take that out I promise no problem um all right thank you all right so I'm going to move on to the next question so Nora um as an editor of the volume which chapters of the book were most outside your wheelhouse and taught you the most as a reader
2: that is a great question um I I would say David Grimmett's chapter on dynamics of Christian abstinence is a really helpful piece that falls outside of my work, primarily because it is so theological in nature. And while I knew about many of the groups he mentioned, some were new, and I wasn't as well read on the biblical underpinnings of Christian dietary abstinence and vegetarianism. But I would also say that Susan Crawford O'Brien's piece on salmon ceremonies in the Northwest was completely outside the scope of my expertise. And that, that was useful to me and challenging.
1: Ben, what do you think? What was outside your wheelhouse and taught you the most as a reader?
3: I was just flipping through the book yesterday thinking about this, and Crawford O'Brien's chapter on on salmon ceremonies and salmon rituals among the Pacific Northwestern Native Americans uh, was one of them. And the other one that really struck me was Sarah uh, Robinson's work on eco-halal. Yes. Uh, so she did an ethnographic study uh, here in Chicago, where I am, but I wasn't at the time, on... Uh, the, uh, and the Taqwa collective which was a group of uh, Muslim Americans who uh, while still following the traditions of halal were trying to to Forge a new path of, of halal. Halal is, is Islam, Islamic uh, food requirements; uh, it just means permitted food. Um, that kept in mind ecological consciousness, uh, fair a treatment of workers, fair treatment of the earth, sustainable production, and they tr- uh, tried to sort of brand this as as a way in which modern Muslim Americans could uh, could both follow the traditions of halal but also live within their uh, uh their ideals for for how to live in a sustainable world uh, and, and again it was totally outside of my wheelhouse i knew nothing about this i knew a little bit about traditional halal, but the idea that there was sort of this new this new variant of it uh was totally new to me
1: ben i want you to imagine for a second that a part two of this book is happening um what do you wish was in the in the book that isn't? Uh, what do you how could you envision a part two taking place um, in all the research that's happened in the last five years?
3: So I keep a bibliographic database of anything I can find published on religion and food uh, and uh, it's 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 in Zotero, so it's very easy, which is a bibliographic software. So I was sorting through it, and I noticed something interesting. Uh, the books, articles uh, which have come out, since 2014 basically since 2015 the last five years um there's more of them in the last five years than there were for the hundred years before that
1: uh
3: there literally i mean when i I looked at everything which had been written between 1900 and, and, and about five years ago it was it was it was less than the last five years so i if we were to do the book again or if we were ever to have a part two to engage this new scholarship which is coming from everywhere from religious studies scholars sociologists anthropologists historians there's just a huge and food study scholars of course uh, a huge burgeoning interest in in the study of food and culture and that was just beginning i think we were part of that trend uh and if we were to go back ever, ever to do a part two boy would we have, we have a lot of reading to do there is just <laughs> <laughs> some are out there
1: nora what do you want in a part two
2: um, well, I, I would echo that. I mean, there is so much now it's overwhelming. And we were struggling a little bit to um, when we when we did put the book together on how to be a little more representative of uh, America, North American foodways. Um, I remember that it was really difficult for us to find um, more than just the one um, uh, chapter on Islam Um mm-hmm. I mean, we do also have uh, a chapter that deals with Mormonism and the Nation of Islam, but um, we we really didn't have. We had an a plethora of uh, stuff on Jews. I mean, we really mm-hmm. I think we were overrepresented <laughs> in Jewish studies because I think that. Uh, there was more written about food within Jewish studies. Um, And so I think that, yes, we would have a lot of reading to do. And we did at one point talk about a part two, but I was interested in possibly doing um, a companion reader to this book of having primary source material.
1: Oh, that would be excellent.
2: That would go away Mm -hmm. along with that, but... You know, we all have jobs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stuff got well, away from you
3: them. know, actually, uh, another sort of way to think about the part two is Marie Dollins' current project, which has many of the same people involved, and she's working on a book on uh, religion, dress, and adornment. Oh, cool! Uh, which some of the very similarly looks at sort of material culture and the way in which this isn't what you're eating, but what you're putting on your body or how you're modifying your body. And so I think of that group, I think many of the same people are involved.
2: Well, I know you and I are. I yeah. wonder.
1: I wonder if Marie's working with. Uh, I think her name is Liz Bukar. She does a book called. She's a book called Pious Fashion. I can't remember. there's an
3: idea for a future program. You'd have to. You have to talk to Marie. Yeah.
1: There you go. Um, okay. Well. So uh, I am really, really delighted with this conversation. Um, I'm so happy that I could get both of you on the show at the exact same time because you know everybody's schedules are super busy and having multiple people involved with this book on to talk about it just is really a lot of fun for me. I'm so grateful to both of you for your time. Can you both uh, just spend a moment, um, maybe Nora first, saying like where people can find you or where you would want to point people to if they wanted to find out more about your work?
2: Well, you can find me at the University of Rochester, rochester rochester.edu. But I am on Twitter. Uh, My handle is at the Rebellion and (laughs) that's a great (laughs) handle that's not that's awesome i'm not very active on twitter but I'm, i'm a lurker and i do respond so um so you can find me there
3: excellent ben my twitter is so lame i think i'm, I'm zeller prof uh but uh, you, you can like find that. me i teach it it's, it's it's fine um i teach at lake forest college that's lake forest with an l uh lakeforest.edu uh, my own personal website is nrms.net nerms.net um that's for new religious movements uh but i'm easily googleable as well
1: Dr. Zeller, Dr. Rubel, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. I've had a really wonderful time with you today.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
3: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
1: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at Outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.